Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. How to get hired by Netflix. What's the latest on Andrew Neil's GB News and Rupert Murdoch's News UK channel launches? And what's next for Piers Morgan? Hi, I'm Justin Crosby and welcome to this week's Telecast. On this week's show, my guests are former BBC North America and Europe editor Mark Mardell, media consultant and journalist Ian Burrell, Indigo Talent MD Jude Thompson and David Cornwall, Managing Director at Scorpion TV. It's all coming up on this week's telecast. There are two brand new news channels set to launch in the UK in the coming weeks and here to discuss the country's TV news landscape and the effect these new players may have on it are Mark Mardell, formerly the BBC's North America and Europe editor and presenter of Radio 4's The World This Weekend, and Ian Burrell, media consultant and writer of the media column for the iPaper and the news business column for The Drum. He's also formerly assistant editor of The Independent and previously worked for The Sunday Times and ITV. Mark, Ian, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Justin. Great to have you on. Ian, coming to you first, is there really a market for two new news channels in the UK? Well, certainly the people putting the money in to it think there's an opportunity. To me, this is this is post-Brexit television news, uh, this sense that there was a whole audience out there that's being passed by by the current incumbents in television news. Um, and this has been building really since since the referendum and all the years that we've lived through since then, this feeling that uh, London-centric news is uh, not reaching various parts of the country, that people are being left behind. That's certainly the the feeling behind GB News in particular. They're looking to create diversity in the voices on their on their schedule um, and to reach uh, reach parts of the country that they believe are currently underserved. Mark, the, the BBC just announced last week there's a whole load of changes right across the corporation, but looking specifically at news, they're taking the Today programme, 
to be co-presented from outside London from at least 100 episodes a year. They're moving the climate and science team out to Cardiff and technology to Glasgow. BBC's World Service business team has moved out to Salford. And there's going to be a new generation of 100 new reporters based in towns and areas that have never really had a regional TV presence. Do you think this is an admission that the BBC hasn't really been serving the UK population properly with news? I think, as ever with the BBC, it's a bit of a curate's egg and a mixed bag to mix my metaphors thoroughly muddled up. But I, I think that it's partly what Ian described, that post-Brexit landscape, the feeling that there's an audience who just doesn't feel served by the BBC. I'm not how sure how right that is, how good their research is, but it's partly driven by that. Some of it's, as I say, very good. I think the 100 new reporters is a brilliant idea. Um, if it really happens and they really put them in places and towns that have never been served before, fantastic. Because one of the problems I had always had on the programme of the World at One was when the story happened, you'd ring up the newsroom and they'd say, sorry, it's just me reading the news. There's nobody here to go out and do it. And I'm talking about places like Liverpool saying that. So, you know, that's brilliant. I think it's a good idea to get the Today programme on the road and uh, other programmes. Um, I'd like to think I'm a bit of a pioneer with that. We took the world at one and the world this weekend on the road quite a lot. You have to be technically quite editorially quite focused on that. You can't just go there and then hope something will turn out. You have to look for a story that will work. We did it during Brexit, so it was always about Brexit and the area's attitude. So you've got to be focused. I think getting people out of out of London is probably a good idea, but it's more about um, a social strategy, an economic strategy that the government will endorse than anything that helps the BBC. I mean, I think being based in Cardiff or Glasgow rather than London maybe gives you a wider uh, viewpoint, but I'm... Uh, that seems to be more the social engineering than actually trying to reflect the voice of the country. Ian, you talked about this being driven by a sort of a post-Brexit kind of movement, if you like. Or, um, I mean, the BBC has been always known as, or certainly Andrew Neil recently uh, talked about the BBC's news as being metropolitan and sort of centre-left. And these two new services, we're assuming they're going to be more on the centre-right or more right-wing facing. Um, people have talked about Fox News as a, as a bit of a template for this. Can you talk us through these two new services and what we know so far? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's certainly the case with GB News. You only have to look at the hires that they've made, which is the most interesting signal so far of, of the type of service they're putting together. There, there are three individuals who've got strong connections with uh, the Brexit Party or, or Reform UK, as it's now known. Michelle Dubry, uh, Alexandra Phillips, also Inaya uh, Follerin Iman have all stood for the Brexit Party. Um, on top of that, you have uh, Christian Mitchell, who's the uh, LBC producer for Nigel Farage, at least for as long as Nigel Farage was with LBC. And and then I, I read very recently um, Gawain Towler, who's the uh, former Brexit Party comms chief, writing very favourably about GB News and saying they should go the whole hog and give Nigel Farage um, a presenting slot himself. So there's a strong alignment there. And that's why I would say that, that, that this is uh, a service that's looking to reach the so-called 52%, those people who voted for Brexit. Um, there's a strong political alignment there. 
with the News UK offering, I think it's different. I don't think it's so clearly a right-wing product. And, and it does describe itself as a product rather than as a channel. It's going to be individual programs that sit on connected TV rather than the 24-hour news channel that we've been used to. And it's going to really advocate and, and market for the existing brands in the News UK, Rupert Murdoch's newspaper stable. So it will build on the brand recognition that The Sun, The Times and also talk radio already have. And this play is very much about um, News UK realising that it can't just be a, a newspaper legacy media organisation. It has to be multimedia. It's already moved into the radio sphere with uh, talk uh, radio and, and Times radio. And this is an extension of that. It's a cross-marketing, cross-promotion uh, of some of its uh, best-known figures from um, from those news brands. So uh, the Times is obviously uh, rather different in, in outlook from a Brexit uh, leave-type uh, position. There are differences in, in, in terms of the political leanings of those two organisations quite distinct. Taking GB News to begin with, obviously, chairman is Andrew Neil, a hugely successful career in, in news, but basically being editor of the Sunday Times and lots of various newspapers over the years, but also, you know, helming some very successful political shows and actually being probably the most effective political interviewer, uh, certainly over the last election and, uh, and over the last few years. It seems to me to have all of the right ingredients to, to succeed. Mark, what, what do you think? What do you make of GB News? Well, I mean, I would agree with you to start off about Andrew Neil. I work with him very closely on this week. I think he's a brilliant interviewer, brilliant presenter, very badly treated by the BBC and stupidly treated because if they're worried about how they appeal to a certain audience, he was the man to do the job. And as you say, he's the he's the best interviewer they've got. And I think it was crazy to throw him away. And I've got a lot of respect for him. But I'm worried about, I'm concerned, interested indeed, fascinated by what GB News turns out to be, because it's all very well saying it looks Brexity, it looks leave leavish. Well, we've left. I know there's a lot of mileage left in Brexit, and it's a process, not a thing that happens, but you can't bang on about Brexit the whole time. They say they want to serve a marginalised and overlooked community, an underserved and under unheard community. Do they really mean that, or do they just mean the people who voted Conservative? in the last election, in the, those new red wall seats. Um, is it just about that? Is it is it wider than that? Because Neil says, Andrew Neil says, it's not going to be Fox News, it's not going to be fake news, it's not going to be ranting. But it seems to me one of the things that's running through it is anti-woke. Now, woke is obviously the heir to political correctness gone mad, as in they won't even let your own human beings as slaves anymore. It's political correctness gone mad. And how much can you mileage can you get out of being anti-woke uh, without becoming homophobic, without becoming racist, without becoming a lot of other things that people will find distasteful or, or at least are on the margins of Fox News type ranting? And I'm not sure. I mean, you know, it's all very well talking about statues for a bit and going on about people being banned and non-platformed. But how much mileage is that? Is that? I mean, they're going to be doing, I think if my maths is right, 270 days broadcasting a year or the equivalent thereof. You can't just go on about Colson statue the whole time. 
Yeah, absolutely. What what about you, Ian? I mean, do you think out of the two, I mean, you mentioned earlier on that, the you know, there the are two very different offers and we'll come on to talk about News UK's offer a bit more in a second. But I mean, in terms of, you know, funding, it seems to be very well funded. We've got a discovery. There's also Dubai group that are that are funding this as well as other individuals. It seems to have, from what I've read, around 60 million pounds of initial funding and they've launched a recruitment drive for about 140 jobs including 120 journalists which is actually amazing over the last last couple of weeks we've seen you know a huge drive in into journalism for both these uh, both BBC and GB news which is which is obviously great news and something that that's much needed well it depends on the on the metrics you use to judge its success i think um mark's absolutely right that andrew neil who's the the flagship host is a huge asset to the project but 60 million i mean it sounds a lot at first but um, news channels particularly the type of ambitious schedule that gb news is talking about putting together they're extremely expensive things to run and they don't traditionally make money um sky news hasn't made money uh, most people will consider that to be a success over the years including andrew neil who was there at the beginning but it's not a financial success in, in that respect. You have to consider how we judge this. There's not a huge audience for rolling news. Um, it's a pretty minority interest. And most media analysts struggle to see the business case for this and the idea that advertisers will be queuing up to, to spend money with, with a service like this, particularly if, as uh, Mark uh, suggested they veer towards um, some pretty sort of hostile stuff, particularly if they need to keep the ratings up, which uh, offends people and, and leads to criticism and backlash. Uh, it's not quite as an easy one uh, to pull off as, as I think you suggest or might seem in these early days when uh, it's all good news as far as they're concerned because they're bringing on new people, they're, they're hiring in, in a market where there's uh, a lot of cuts and recession and it seems like they're going forward. I think that because of the types of backers they have, uh, it's not all about making money. Paul Marshall, who's the, the big hedge funder, who, who also underwrites um, Unheard, which is another anti-woke news outlet um, that is involved in the culture wars that that Mark was describing. Uh, He's one of the big backers. The Legatum Foundation in Dubai is is also putting in a lot of money. Uh, I'm not sure that the idea that they're going to make a huge amount of profits is is the motivation. I think it's about uh, changing the narrative in, in television news, providing something different. Um, and and all that comes with that. Absolutely, I think it's it's intended as a wedge against the BBC. It's trying to force open the the scale of political intervention on from the television broadcasters and and just push the envelope a little bit or quite a lot, I imagine. And I think it is is more political than about making money. I of course welcome the new journalistic jobs. I wonder what they're going to be. Whether it's just going to be production staff or whether they are actually going to employ reporters to talk to the people who are underserved and underheard. You mentioned rolling news. I think Andrew Neal has said it won't be conventional rolling news, so, that, so it'll be sort of discussion panel shows, I imagine. I don't know. We don't quite know yet. But I think it's very difficult to 
fulfill their remit of actually talking for people who are underserved and underheard. And if they don't just mean people who say, you know, we don't never talk about immigration when we talk about nothing else. If they really mean there's an underserved, underserved audience, particularly in the north of England, then you have to have people out there reporting, just looking for those stories, hearing those stories. It's six and a half thousand hours a year of original news, opinion and debate. But I guess we talked about Fox News as a, as a model for this in the US in terms of personality-driven channel. They've, uh, they've hired, uh, surprisingly, actually, they've hired Dan Wooden, haven't they, from News UK. And you would imagine Dan Wooden would be the jewel in the crown or one of the jewels in the crown for the News UK uh, offering, Ian. Yeah, that was a bit of a poach. And I think um, that adds an interesting dimension to, to this whole whole mix. Um, so you have Dan Wooten, who people associate with News UK on one side of the fence for GB News. And the first announcement talent-wise from News UK was Gordon Smart with uh, an offering called News to Me, which is another celebrity entertainment type format rather than the, the more traditional news offerings that we were expecting. This extra dimension it it all helps i think gb news in saying we're a broader proposition than having just a, a single uh, political agenda that that will all help with with ofcom and the way that it sees the the outlet i i i don't think um ofcom will be uh looking to to shut this down as some of the critics are already asking it to do uh, before it's even launched, Ofcom, Ofcom has a brief to encourage plurality of voices, uh, and it and it very uh, very rarely steps in to to close any service down. The phrase it uses is due impartiality, which is quite broad. I think having Dan Wharton there, having some of the other very well respected journalists that they they've taken on board, like Colin Brazier, Darren McCaffrey, very. Uh, established uh, Sky News uh, figures will offset um, some of the more sort of louder political voices that they've taken on board and probably help with the regulator, I would have thought. We've seen Ofcom you know, bare its teeth fairly recently, haven't we, with CGTN, the, uh, the Chinese news channel? They did, but that, but that was really because CGTN failed to separate their ownership from the Communist Party of China um, and only after very long negotiations uh, and with some reluctance did Ofcom have to sever that license relationship. I think they were given every opportunity to remain on air. You you only have to look at um, RT Russia today, the, the, the Kremlin uh, supported Russian uh, international news network to see that they're still broadcasting in the UK despite having committed serious breaches of the Ofcom code as indeed uh, CGTN did but but CGTN lost their license because they weren't able to show that they were distinct from um, the Communist Party of China and that is forbidden under Ofcom rules you can't be run by a political party by law we talked about the investors including discovery and ian you mentioned that you know you didn't think it was necessarily a money making exercise looking at news channels you know you mentioned russia today uh, we mentioned cgtn these are channels really 
about soft power, aren't they? They're really about idealism and uh, of, of of the backers. Mark, so you do you you feel that that this is really that you know that anti we talked about anti woke agenda, and that's actually woke watch is one of the things that GB News one of the sections that it's it's going to have as a regular feature on the show. Do you think that the channel is looking to sort of push the BBC aside in terms of from a, from its political standpoint and being a centre-left broadcaster? I think it's not so much trying to push the BBC aside as challenge it and paint it as centre-left, which Andrew Neil quite, quite clearly does. I'm not sure that's true anymore. I mean, the idea that The Guardian is the only thing that gets discussed in editorial meetings is completely untrue. I think The Daily Mail gets a much bigger look in. Um, so I think the idea is rather old-fashioned that the BBC is purely centre-left. But I think what it's trying to do is widen the media landscape in Britain so that there is space for political comment. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, well, I'm slightly torn in the sense that I'm excited by GB News. I think it's interesting. I, I think any new venture I really want to see succeed, and I'll be delighted to see how it pans out. But I am worried about broadcasting generally becoming an echo chamber, I mean, just as social media does, because you choose, in social media, you choose who to follow. But in broadcasting, what happened in, in the States is deadly, I think. I think it's one of the reasons that American democracy is in danger is because you only watch what backs up your prejudices. You never hear anything that challenges your own view. And I think that's really dangerous. And I think it'd be a great shame to lose that in Britain. I think Tim Davy, with his stress on the need for impartiality, is trying to fight that and saying, "Not, you know, we're not going to have a go at these other broadcasters per se. We're not going to say that they're wrong, but we are going to set the gold standard for being impartial." Now, we all know in our own uh, struggles with journalism that it's not something you actually can achieve impartiality, but it is worth trying. I think, and I, I hope the BBC can carries on doing that. And it does worry me if people do start going into their little ghettos and only hearing views they applaud rather than those that uh, annoy them as well. We spoke about that when you were last on the show, Mark. We talked about Trump and uh, the various other right-wing news networks that were vying for his signature back in uh, November or December after the election. We've just seen recently there's rumours about him launching his own social media network, which is uh, kind of frightening. I think, but but to, to your point, if you're tuning into a channel because it's going to offer you news and opinion from a viewpoint that you're seeking, as opposed to impartial news, that I mean, that's us just supply and demand, isn't it, Ian? I mean, that's that's it's fair enough. In the same way that you pick up a newspaper, you know, you either pick up the Daily Mirror or you pick up the Guardian or you pick up uh, uh, whatever other newspaper because of its political leanings and you feel that you feel more comfortable with. Isn't that just what GB News is doing? Well, they would say that, but uh, television news in the UK hasn't been like that traditionally. And some would say that's its beauty, that it has very high levels of trust, higher levels of trust than the newspapers enjoy because it treads a, a careful line of impartiality. And, and what we're seeing here, you could say, is potentially an Americanization of our television news. The model for GB News uh, not just in in terms of, of pure output, but in in terms of format, is the American model. Um, so the types of programming that Fox News, but also MSNBC puts together those kind of studio discussion shows, and 
we're also seeing this Americanization play out in other areas of broadcast. So LBC, I think, has been an encouragement to um, these new TV players in that they've been able to give platforms to people with very strong opinions um, who maybe wouldn't have been able to get onto the BBC, who've been balanced under this due impartiality one against another. So you've had the likes of Nigel Farage on LBC. Possibly James O'Brien would be seen to be a counterbalance to that from, from the left of centre. And that's been a big encouragement. And and now we're seeing it also with Piers Morgan and what he's done at, at Good Morning Britain up until uh, his his rather dramatic departure from there. He's taken some of the lessons he learned in, in the US and brought this very opinionated style that we've just not been used to up until now. So I think this is a potentially it's a tipping point. And I think Mark used the expression pushing at the envelope. Uh, that's what we're seeing here. And, and to come back to the point of the BBC, it could be that if the BBC is nudged a bit to the right, then uh, some of the political uh, supporters of these new ventures will consider that part of their uh, success metrics as well. They'll, they'll consider that this was all, all, all worthwhile if they've, they've changed the balance of, of, of the debate. You mentioned Piers Morgan, and he's presumably the, the spectre that is uh, casting a shadow over both of these services, I think, because the question is, where is he going to go next? You know, this is, as you say, a presenter that has not only taken his, his cues from American TV, but obviously he spent quite a lot of time on American TV at CNN uh, with his own show. He's also comes to any channel with nearly 8 million Twitter followers. So he's actually, you know, a, a hugely influential hire. Where's he going to go? I mean, we know that Rupert Murdoch is a big admirer of his and he's worked for him many times in the past. But presumably he, he won't be con- content with just being on a connected TVs. He'll want he'll, he'll to be the, the star of a channel himself. I mean, what do you think? Where, where, where's your money going? Where's he going to land? He'll have plenty of offers, that's for sure. Um, and both of those new ventures would want to have him on board. The News UK uh, team has his former producer, Winnie Dunbar-Nelson, on their top team already. She was his producer at CNN, also at Good Morning Britain. Uh, So that's a very strong connection. If they can put together the kind of package that gives him opportunities across different media, then they... Rupert Murdoch has plenty of money. He's not necessarily put a great deal of money into this project so far, uh, but he is awash with cash. If they make make the right opportunity for him, that could be very attractive. At the same time, GB News is very much suited to him. He produced a book last year, Woke Up. I mean, it's it's all about attacking woke culture. He's made that his his big signature at GMB and in his attacks on Meghan Markle. He's a personal friend of Andrew Neil, and Andrew Neil's already said he would love to have him on board. You saw with the kind of Dan Wooten offering, where Dan Wooten's come to GB News, but also taken on a new journalism uh, position with the Mail on Sunday. You're seeing 
the way that packages could be potentially put together for Piers Morgan. He will also potentially have other other offers. Some of the streamers might put something together. He might be interested in what Jeremy Clarkson has has done with Amazon. He he already has uh, a bit of a presence on Netflix with, with a series there about women in prison. He is a rare character, hated by many, uh, but but nonetheless able to draw big audiences and bring audiences with him uh, in a way that very few people can. Mark, what do you make of Piers Morgan and his ability to obviously to 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 offend and upset but also you know he's been very successful in holding the government to account many would say during the pandemic he's been the one challenging voice to the government i mean can you just see this getting bigger and bigger in terms of uh personality-led news yes i think so definitely i think personality news is 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 a future um i say a future because i don't think it's necessarily the future and not necessarily the way the bbc Will want to go, but it's. Uh, I mean, what a showman! What a great success! What a huge success! And as you say, I mean, there's there's one bit of me that despises him for that, and the way that uh, you you want to not so much it's that you want to watch him, but you you read about him constantly. And it seems the whole Megan storm out was was deliberate to me. It was designed to provoke headlines and to make him bigger than the story. But he has been a great success, as you say, holding the government to account account, doing tough interviews, which I think increasingly we don't see very much on the BBC. I think that we're uh, getting into a phase where the BBC is worried about offending the government on occasions and doesn't give very strong drillings in many cases. You know, Paxman, was who I worked with for a long time as well, was a huge success at that, of being not necessarily opinionated, but just answer, asking the tough questions again and again. And Piers Morgan clearly does that. And you know, that's again where I've seen him tweeted around again and again when he's put the government ministers on the spot. And I think that would, um, that's great to see that. And I would like to see that if we're saying that the, if I was saying that the BBC is being nudged in a certain direction by these news channels, that would be great if it was nudged into a tougher approach to government. Because it's quite interesting that both Andrew Neil and Piers Morgan have, to an extent, a sort of, well, Piers Morgan go flits across, but a right wing persona. But nevertheless, they're still quite tough on this Tory government. I think he's all just a, just a, an aside. He sort of a, he fits in with the Trump and the Boris mold, doesn't he? He's a populist character, middle-aged white man, but you know, sort of somebody who's larger than life and says what he thinks others won't say. There, there must be a question as to how much he appeals to the millennial audience, though, which is. If you're going for advertisers, you know that that they're the holy grail. You know that kind of grumpy middle-aged guy approach is not necessarily going to play that well with them. I I think with GB News, if they could afford him, another thing that they might find difficult with Piers Morgan is whether he would overshadow the whole brand. He's such a big personality at the moment. Their their big name is Andrew Neil, and they draw a lot of kudos from that. If it becomes the Piers Morgan channel, that might be something different from what they set out to do, particularly as Mark was saying, he is a bit of a maverick. He he led the mirror against the Gulf War. You know, he, he took on uh, the gun lobby in the United States. He He's challenged the UK government over its handling of COVID. And yet on other things, he's very 
anti-woke uh, pro-royal family, much more sort of traditionally right-wing. Um, it's a difficult one to to call, um, and, and and such a big name that he could become sort of all dominant on the channel. So it'd be a difficult one for them to manage, I think. Where's Jeremy Paxman these days? I mean, we we miss him. I miss him. I miss him a lot. Um, I think he pops up on Channel 4 documentaries from time to time. I think he's got a podcast, which I haven't shamefully listened to yet, uh, interviewing the great and the good. Yeah, he has a podcast uh, which is based on um, having a drink with people in the pub and shooting the breeze, which is obviously uh, not uh, especially well-timed in an era of a lockdown. Um, which is rather unfortunate for him. <laughs> He's been waiting in the pub for the last year. Where yeah. You can see he'd be very attractive to um, I, either a product from News UK or, or uh, the schedule at GB News. Yeah, I read an interview with him last week that he did with Press Gazette, uh, where he, he not only ruled himself out from having had any talks with GB News, but rather indicated that he was completely out the loop by saying he never watches Newsnight anymore, hasn't watched it for years, and um, claiming not to recognise um, quite a lot of what's going on at the moment. So uh, I, I don't think he's looking for a gig with either of these operators uh, anytime soon. Well, he's a man after my own heart, that, because that's what I based Telecast on when I uh, started it last year, was the idea of sitting with TV people in a bar, shooting the breeze. So uh, so maybe we should get him on next week and uh, or invite him <laughs> on in the future. We can see, uh, see how it's going. And yeah, he sounds well, he sounds like he's uh, he's chilling out. He's had enough of the whole uh, uh, aggressive interviewing and he's probably just yeah. you know, taking it easy. He's always had that rather world-weary style about him. <laughs> he's done the Edinburgh Festival as well, hasn't he? So uh, yeah, he's, he's got a few strings to his bow. Yeah. Mark, Ian, fantastic for you to join me this week. I've been really enjoying our discussion. We could talk a lot. We could talk probably a lot more about News UK, but there's, there's a little less has been announced on that. So uh, maybe we can look at that again in the future sometime. Thanks so much for joining me on this week's show. Really enjoyed having you on the show. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. How do you get headhunted by a Netflix or a Disney? How does a headhunter operate? And what's the market like right now for senior executive TV hires? Well, here to tell us all of this and more about the secrets of the TV industry headhunter, I'm joined by Jude Thompson, MD and founder of leading TV industry talent recruitment business, Indigo Talent. Hi, Jude. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. This is a really interesting subject that um, I've been really interested in talking about for a number of weeks. So uh, I'm delighted to have uh, someone as experienced as yourself to to guide us through this and talk us through the world of the headhunter. But um, first of all, you, you've got testimonials on your website from Ben Frow, Wayne Garvey, Lorraine Hegacy, Sam Barcroft, and lots of others. Tell us more about what you do and who you do it for. We are a bespoke and boutique headhunting company, which means we're small. There's only five of us, um, and we intentionally keep it very tight. We work specifically within the TV industry, SFOD industry, and two divisions, scripted and unscripted. And clients, as you've seen on the website, range from people like Fremantle to Sony to Sky to smaller clients like uh, various artists, 
50 Fathoms, Lightbox. We work with exceptional, exceptional storytellers and creatives and really proud to do that. What's the background to the company? Did you work in TV or do does uh, other execs within the business work in the TV industry? How, how did you come to be a specialist headhunter in this area? Um, we're a diverse crew, actually. Uh, there's two of our team specifically came from production and talent management. I came through the executive search world, so I've been doing this for 20 years. Not many benefits of getting older, but one of them is experience and confidence. And I guess the other is I've worked with candidates 15, 20 years ago. So now they are in senior leadership roles. We, who else have we got? Claudia, who's my business partner, came from radio. Sunrise, who's just joined us in Glasgow. She came from gaming. So yeah, a real mixed. And I think it brings um, a different edge and a different opinion onto the market and the people we evaluate and identify. So I've always wondered, and I'm sure lots of other people have wondered out there, how does a headhunter operate? Because, you know, this is everybody wants to get headhunted, don't they? <laughs> we know that headhunters are out there, but, but you know, you're, as you say, you, you may be a bit of a stealth business. Tell us about how you <laughs> yeah, operate. That's right. And in fact, somebody called us a private investigator the other day because we really are behind the scenes. There's a lot of senior roles and hiring that we're involved in, but, you know, that's you're not going to hear that from us. And I think that's our place. We hold so much information and intel. You know, confidence and trust is our number one value. And we will always retain that information, using it to help us shape our searches and decisions, but never, ever sharing anything. So we are constantly in the market. If you think about how many people we're talking to, how many people we're listening to, what we're learning, um, and that's how we build our intel and information. So in terms of how you get headhunted, uh, you know, I guess the majority of our work is word of mouth, recommendations is a big part. Every time we talk to somebody, we always ask questions about who they've worked with, you know, where has been their sweet spot in terms of being in the development team, where something really worked. So there's all questions like that we dig down to who's been inspiring, who have they learned from. And then on the other side of the fence, we're complete super geeks. And I will sit there with a spreadsheet monthly going through all the programming index, who's been commissioning, you know, what the ratings were, what's been recommissioned, why is that being recommissioned, and um, who was really behind the show. That's an interesting one. There's quite often specific shows that at least a dozen people are claiming to have created. So that's when it's like, okay, who really did that? And for example, if you're ever interviewing a creative or a development person who claims that was entirely their idea. That's generally a big porky because development's collaborative. There's always elements that somebody added. So we investigate a lot. We get really down to the who was really behind the show. Claudia always describes it as this huge jigsaw, and we're forever putting the parts together. So headhunting is about, at the end of the day, doing amazing work, doing great work, being really talented at what you do because that's how people talk about you. Well, that's how people recommend you. And I think that's really how it works. And also, you know, we follow people. We follow people's careers. We look at the talent coming up, who's the next layer below the people we're working with, and we help them. We coach them. We, we're there as a sounding board when they're just deciding which role to go to next. And then once they're at a certain level, they come into our sphere, and we can start, you know, exploring who they're going to work best with, which culture in order for them to flourish. I think, you know, at the heart of what we do is we try and get 
as Jim Collins used to say, you know, you get the right people and the right bus in the right seats, and then you go in the right direction. And it's, you know, where are people going to do their really best work? Where are they going to flourish and what's going to work for the clients? Presumably, an executive has to wait for you to get in touch with them because you're out there watching their careers. And as you say, you know, uh, success as many fathers, if you like, I think this is the mm. term when, when you look at a show and lots of people claiming their, you know, their creators strictly come dancing or whatever. Uh, in terms of an executive looking to move up the ladder, well, everybody does, should they get in touch with you or are they waiting for you to get in touch with them to uh, do, do your research and uh, waiting for the, for the call, for the email from you? I mean, it works both ways. I would anticipate we've probably been in touch with most people um, who are in permanent roles, by the way. Headhunters tend to work at a permanent level, whereas a lot of talent managers and there's other, um, there's sort of some recruitment agencies who are really good in the market and they will look more at freelance execs. So it's a different, it's a different type of role. If we're asked for freelance, if we know anybody who just, you know, is in between roles or looking for some work we're always happy to share names but in, in general you know we're always open for people to contact us I guess the I guess the challenge is in some aspects if somebody's proactively looking for a role we're not going to be the best people because we're working on either specific briefs or we're looking at people who will be considering what next after they've delivered certain things at their current companies. So, mm. for example, there's a couple of people we're working with at the moment who are outstanding creatives, and they, you know, they've probably got another six months at least where they are, either because of an earnout or because that's, you know, they're delivering a significant show. In fact, one of them's got a year left on something. But we're already starting meetings and exploring where they would be going next whether that's another client, whether it's setting up a label. We put investment behind labels as well. We're doing M&A activity for US clients. Anything to do with creatives at the heart of it, that's where we fit. Back in my day, we used to have a paper CV and you know there was books on how, you, how a perfect CV should appear. Now, obviously, we've got LinkedIn and we've got other you know, social networks where you, you, people have, have profiles. You know, do CVs matter anymore? I mean, I'm sure they do, but what are the key indicators that you're looking for in people's social profiles? You know, and how should people manage their their social profiles? Great question, and you need to get more of a social expert on that because I'd say more, you know, coming up the line, more junior roles, definitely talent managers and HR check out social profiles. So you need to be mindful of what you share. In our role, we tend not to look at any. We don't look at any socials. I'd say in-house recruiters. So some of the big studios, for example, have in-house recruiters that they use for all of their roles. And as do uh, the SFODs, Netflix have a really strong talent team and they will look at LinkedIn. Um, Mm. So I would say to anyone proactively looking for a role, keep your LinkedIn profile really updated with a strong profile, a good professional photo. I mean, there's great tips on LinkedIn to go into. But we never use that information I think talent base and people like that will always have CVs so that document does come important when we're when we're sharing information when we're effectively shortlisting which means for the client we're sharing which candidates should be taken to the next stage and interviewed for the specific brief then we use CVs 
And what people are most interested in is where they've worked, obviously, who they've worked to and what their credits are. So what shows, somebody will always scan immediately what shows have they worked on. What's the market like right now for permanent roles? Because we've, we've obviously come through, you know, uh, when we're recording this, we're, we're, it's the anniversary of a year in lockdown in the UK. You know, very unusual patterns in terms of the way that the business has uh, run in, the, in terms of the content industry. Uh, what's the market for permanent roles right now? I'd say, well, just take a step back. What happened this time last year then, after that three weeks of complete blind panic, all the global roles that we were doing, the global leadership roles, they all went on hold, which was absolutely right, because people in those positions needed to navigate their existing companies through whatever was happening. Um, And also senior leadership here, you know, in the UK, they were obviously all focused on effectively production and keeping their people safe. So recruitment took a back seat at that stage. So, you know, we did have a sort of a big pause, which is quite right. And then there was also a fear factor of people not wanting to move roles during this time, because again, it was like, well, what happens? I'm on furlough, I'm not on furlough. So there was, there was I mean, as you'd imagine, there's quite a bit of anxiety. Yeah. As of before Christmas, everything came back. So all the global roles are back on. We, I mean, as a business, remember we're, we're a small business and we only take on a certain number of searches so that we can do them all very well. But we're at capacity in both scripted and non-scripted. So um, we won't take any new searches on until, okay, this is morning, until May. So right. I guess that gives a snapshot that things are moving. It's positive. I've talked okay. to other headhunters that are in a similar position. Um, and that's another thing, by the way, I'm just going to crop back to that. So headhunters all tend to have their own relationships with clients. So somebody will work with that client, we'll work with somebody else. So anyone who wants to get on the radar of headhunters needs to sort of connect with all the bigger players to flag themselves up. I'd suggest that, especially if you're proactively looking for a role. We saw over the last week uh, in the UK, the BBC announced you know, lots of its departments are starting to move out to the nations and regions. And Channel 4 has obviously already committed and, and indeed opened its offices in lots of places around around the UK. How is that going to affect executive recruitment in the next couple of years? Because coming from Yorkshire, and I know, uh, Jude, you are too. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 when, when it comes to the senior executive who lives in Queen's Park, might not be quite as keen to move up to Newcastle or Glasgow or Leeds. Presumably, that's going to offer loads of new opportunities to people regionally as well. And 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 actually, what happens to the execs that are left in London? Because they're going to be looking for other roles solely in London as well. So it's such an interesting time. Two years ago, we were doing a lot of work in Glasgow and we, we, we've put some brilliant people up there, but it was a lot harder work. And for example, at the moment, we are doing quite a few searches in Bristol, and it's a lot easier to talk to people about moving out of London. Obviously, that's an impact of COVID, having more space. Mm. Um, people really reflecting on lifestyle and how they want to how they want to be spending their time. I think the remote working has really impacted how people will live. It, you know, it's much. It's going to be much more acceptable now to have two days in the office, three days in the office, 
and have a slightly longer commute, that's going to be doable. And I think it's really positive for the regions. We're seeing a lot of people, um, well, the Geordies, having said that, there's not, I couldn't even think of any Indies who were up in Newcastle, which I thought was extraordinary, such a creative bunch. But Geordies, you know, a lot of Northerners end up going home, as I'd like to say, going back to their roots. And so that's fantastic. I know, you know, quite a few people already who are looking at a Northern move. So that's taking this creative talent out of London and up to building talent bases in the regions, which will take a little bit of time, but I think it's I think it's hugely positive. And also, you know, London has been the epicenter for the creative world. I moved out of London five years ago to Brighton, and feeling quite pleased with myself about that during COVID. But um, but I have to say, I what you know, I'm from Middlesbrough originally, but moving out of London, you realise what a bumble, bubble London is. You know, my husband. You know, they're, they're in the pub or watching telly by six o'clock. We haven't even left the office. And I thought, thought that was a really interesting insight for TV world to think about the impact of, you know, creating content outside the London bubble. But positive for the regions, great talent up there. And I think by creating those hubs and talent bases, it's just going to provide way more opportunity, you know, for more voices, for more mm. regional voices. Brilliant. Mm. I'm excited about it. Yeah, me too. And and I think, you know, this is all part of this levelling up that we've been talking yeah, about that I hopefully think. really, you know, really comes through on the back of rebuilding after COVID. But now, now looking at the US streaming businesses who have come and parked their tanks on the lawn of the UK TV industry over the last few years, and uh, I'm hearing whispers from the freelance world that, you know, new productions that are in place now, uh, uh, freelance execs are going to the highest bidder, i.e. the likes of Netflix, and they're paying almost three times as much for an exec for a week in production just because they're desperate to get production moving again. And it's kind of, you know, price isn't, isn't an object for them. But it's, in terms of the permanent roles, are we seeing that similar uh, effect when it comes to US streaming businesses distorting the market with high salaries for UK broadcasters and uh, and other UK content businesses. Mm, good question. They do pay more. It's a fact, um, and I think it'll be more challenging potentially for people when they've been in a streamer to then come out and they might have to take the shout that they're going to need to take a pay cut if they want a specific role somewhere else. So we're doing some global searches at the moment, and the US salaries have always been considerably higher than European salaries. So. Perhaps that's just what happened with the streamers. It's a really tricky one because, you know, you asked at the beginning about, you know, how do you get headhunted for a streamer? People ask us all the time about that. People all want to be working in that SVOD world. And, you know, they've got bigger budgets to play with. It's, it's, it's where people are really heading to consume content as the new players. It's the pinnacle, isn't it, for, a, for an exec's career, I suppose. You know, if you've been working at the BBC or you've been working, you know, at any of the, the other national broadcasters and, you know, you've got likes of Netflix or Disney or Apple who are there going, okay, well, you know, it's almost double the salary and the role that they have as well is so much power then, you know, in terms of, right, okay, you know, they're commissioning might is is also quite significant so you know hugely influential roles it's 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 certainly an interesting area it seems you know but it's tough i'm not saying 
terrestrial commissioning isn't tough as well. All of it's tough. You're very accountable in the Netflix of this world because everything's so data driven. You've got nowhere to hide. If something doesn't deliver, you know, it's very yeah. why hasn't it delivered? But talking about commissioners and producers, hmm. because we often see producers making the jump to a commissioner or or commissioners leaving and setting up their own production companies. How do you know whether a successful producer will make a good commissioner? I don't think you do. I, um, I, I guess the producers, you know, I've seen so many successful, so many people make that transition and really, really enjoy it. I guess the people who, who I've seen who struggled more in a commissioning role from being a producer are the people who get, you know, really at heart amazing program makers. And so they want to get really deep into the nitty gritty of that of that show. And I think they find it harder to then helicopter and take a perspective across multiple shows and allow the execs from those indies to be the execs. And I think that's where you see there's a challenge sometimes. And you know, you often see people then leaving commissioning to go back into program making. I know a lot of people like that. Or they'll enjoy the commissioning process for a while. But if if your heart lands program maker, you go back to it. What about the main challenges that channels and streamers are facing in the market right now in their recruitment needs? What are the challenges they're coming up against? If the streamers want to approach anybody, I'd say everyone is open to an approach from a streamer at the moment. That's for sure. Um, they've got they've got really stringent interview processes and long processes to go through, which can be um, quite challenging for the candidate. I think more than anything. So I'd, I'd say to the streamers, it's probably it's a, it's a really open market to approach people. So I wouldn't say they've particularly got a challenge on recruitment at the moment. You know, now everyone's coming out of COVID, people are much more open to approaching development's a really interesting one actually because everybody's been working hell for leather in development over the last year and actually people are coming to the end of those cycles so we've got a few development searches at the moment and we're finding it a lot easier at the moment to engage with people because they're like yeah I've come up for air scripted the development cycles are a lot longer so you've really got to track people as to where they are on that so there's no point you know approaching somebody 18 months into development cycle over two or three years so it's all about it's all you know what hiring is all about timing it's all about where that person is what they're motivated by at that point in their life whether it's working under a creative that can take them to the next level whether it's financial whether it's you know more time to spend with family so they want something a more flexible culture there's, there's all you know there's six categories really it's just another conversation which people fall into and um and that really shapes people's motivations for changing roles and we tend to know all of those when we talk to people it's really driven by what people are motivated by what about BAME hiring quotas because that is something that you know is at the forefront of hiring policy for many businesses in the UK, and, and, and it's about time as well. There's presumably some challenges with that as well when it comes to hiring at a senior level, because it almost feels like the industry within like the last 18 months, two years, has gone from not really taking BAME issues seriously to putting in quotas and going, we need 
BAME candidates and, and executives at certain level across the industry. That must be a challenge for you and challenge for the uh, for the industry as a whole when it comes to those hiring plans. I mean, definitely. And we've heard, we've heard a lot about that. From Indigo's perspective, diversity has always been part of our DNA. And by diversity, as well as black, Asian, ethnic minority candidates, we also mean demographic, gender, you know, across the board. It's that it's those different voices. That's where we've really sat with our diversity policy. And we've ensured that all of our long lists have been representative. But it has definitely been a challenge. And actually, thinking back to sort of April, May this year, when we had space to really pause and think about this, you know, we, like everybody, you started questioning how you work. Are you doing as much as you can for the industry? I think there was a really big time of reflection there. And um, I approached from talking to one of my contacts, actually, I approached um, Simone Pennant, who runs TVC, to talk to her about it, to say, look, are we missing people? Why have we got such a small pool of Black, Asian, ethnic minorities in this headhunting pool of ours? You know, we quickly were looking at her community, the people we know, and it, you know, we came to the conclusion that that's fact. There just aren't as many people in that senior leadership pool. And then it was like, well, why not? And we started investigating the layer below and a lot of those stories about glass ceilings, people not given the opportunities, are well documented. And off the back of that, Simone and I with Remy Blumfield, I ended up partnering with them to create this breakthrough leadership programme which Remy and Simone had already initiated and also brought in Fremantle, who sponsored the program for us, to really create a, a program which will elevate candidates so they, they can move up in the industry. And it's, um, this program is coaching, mentoring, and 12 months of modules across well, so many different topics, but effectively will give people confidence in the skill sets and help people to have their own personal breakthrough in the industry. I mean, we're really excited. We launched it in December and it's industry nominations. So we had the most fantastic response from all the creative leaders across the industry. We had over 400 nominations, which we went through quite a difficult process actually to get it down to 50 participants who kicked off last month um, on the program. Yeah, so we're really excited by that. And we hope that that at least starts the process of bringing people through in the industry and we'll run this every year as an ongoing commitment to coach mentor yeah that's oh, very good well it's uh, much needed and and uh, the best of luck to you and everyone else involved in that program i'm sure that'll be a a, a big success what's the single piece of advice that you give most often to candidates and hirers so the single piece of advice on both sides of the fence that you give to either party preparation for interviews and that goes both parties because the client, as we came back to before, touched on about motivations. It's so important that they're positioning their business. That in the first interview, they're pitching to the candidate as much as the candidate's pitching to them. It's a real like, you know, first interview is a chemistry. It's whether you've had that connection. It's whether you're inspired. And culture is so important now. We're doing quite a lot of work with clients on that. And um, yeah, so we brief, we try and coach clients about how they should be presenting and engaging in the first interview. And likewise with candidates, really help people prepare and focus and think about where, what you want to highlight. You know, people have got such long, great careers. It's like, okay, you've got X amount of time. Just make sure you have your stories that you want to share. So yeah, preparation for interviews. 
So my last question, Jude, was, you know, we're all coming out of lockdown. Things are looking very positive. You're at capacity when it comes to, you know, hiring, advertising is coming back, money's coming back into the economy. So it's all looking hopefully positive as we come through to the summer. When people are, are coming back to work at offices, we're coming out of lockdown. How do you see the clients that you're working for What's their expectation of people being based in the office? Is it they want people back in the office because it's the culture, or is it a 50-50 blend, which I think a lot of people are sort of starting to de- demand, or is it a case of like the likes of Google? It's like, no, it's fine. You you can work from home for the next year. What 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 are you what are you seeing? So we've been talking about this quite a lot, actually. I would say most people want to be back in the office in some form. Most of our clients are looking at bringing people in for maybe three days a week. And in that time, it's where people are having interactions, the development meetings, the creative discussions. And then when people are sort of heads down, you know, literally with the head, you know, headphones on or doing work or watching brushes, whatever it might be, then they're doing that from home. So I, I feel it, it's feeling like people want people back in the office to, for that social, for that interaction. It's important, you know, it's been incredible difficult, actually, that's a good point. It's been really difficult for people starting new jobs in COVID because you've had none of that just not even going out for a drink, but you've had none of that interaction, you know, while you're making a coffee or a quick check-in. People have been sitting on their own in a flat starting a new job. That's We've been seeing how tricky that is. So people are, you know, especially new starters, you need that interaction. And um, yeah, most clients are excited about getting people back, but making sure that everybody is safe is obviously paramount. And just a different way of working. We've all seen remote working can work. There's that trust element that people were terrified. Oh, no one's going to work well when they're at home. That's gone, hopefully. So um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's going to, hopefully it'll benefit people, people who've had long commutes, myself, you know. Hopefully that will make work-life balance. It's a weird word, but, you know, hopefully people have taken some of the things that have been positive about COVID, about spending more time with family, and can incorporate that into the next stage of our world, whatever that's going to look at. I'm positive. I always like to be positive. I know it's been a tough year for a lot of people, but hoping that, um, yeah, it's going to be good. And also TV industry has entertained people. We've really, you know, the amazing creators and producers we've had have kept people going. The amount of content, you know, my family, my mother, it's been her companion. It's been life-saving, actually, for some of the generations. My Netflix to watch list is just so long now. It's ridiculous. I actually can't get through it. What's your guilty pleasure being in lockdown? The best thing that I saw recently, I think, was Queen's Gambit. I mean, you, you know... The, I think that was that was an amazing piece of piece of work. But there's, uh, I've still got to get onto episode three of the trip. I haven't seen that yet, which is uh, you know, which is, uh, which is definitely on the list. I'm going to watch that this weekend. Jude, thank you so much for coming on Telecast. Really enjoyed talking to you about the recruitment industry and you know what's happening in terms of senior executive hires. So thanks again. Hopefully you'll come on the show again and uh and and we can cover off some of those other areas that we mentioned pleasure thanks for having me take care 
So my next guest on this week's show is David Cornwall, Managing Director at Scorpion TV. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hi, Justin. How are you doing? Very well. I'm great. Where are you based, Scorpion TV? Well, we're based in Farringdon, sort of uh, Holborn Midtown. I think it's fashionably called these days in London. But but mostly I'm I'm working from uh, from the kitchen. Oh, right. <laughs> yes, as we all are. As we all are, yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about Scorpion TV. Well, we are a factual uh, distributor. We're a, a boutique. We're 11 years old. Um, we focus on current affairs, human interests, science and wildlife with um, a sprinkling of arts, uh, culture, travel and lifestyle thrown in. Quite a niche in the, in the factual area. Okay. Are you a pure play distributor or do you get involved in production as well? Um, we get involved in production in the sense of we can try to raise co-production uh, investment and pre-sales from broadcasters. We much prefer to focus on, you know, the finished article and, and getting that out to buyers who sort of know us, know us for that. 20 years in the business, I've kind of grown up in that traditional way. Having those great client relationships means that, you know, we, we do tend to focus on that side of the business. We had Bo from Off the Fence on the show last week, and he was talking about having both production and distribution sides of the businesses help them through the pandemic. Now, if you're a more traditional distributor, how, how have things been for you? This time last year, it was kind of, you know, a, 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 a panic, uh, not just amongst distributors, but also, you know, across the whole TV community. People didn't quite know what they were doing and, and, and how to proceed. I'm a big fan, as my staff and my clients will tell you, of the telephone. I uh, love uh, getting people on the phone. And that was not an option a few months ago. So certainly in the early part of last year, things, things were pretty quiet. We didn't know how to get hold of people. Um, we didn't know what people were looking for. But it quickly became apparent that TV was one of those things that still needed to be fed. Broadcasters still needed you know, quality in their schedules. People were watching more TV at home. You know, slowly but surely... We found a way to work, being pretty much a desk-based business. It wasn't too much of a wrench for us to uh, to transfer to working from the office to working from home. It, in fact, streamlined some of our operations, and um, you know we brought in better CRM, better rights management applications, so that so that we could you know work work better from home. Buyers slowly came back online. Um, the conferences, you know, did did their virtual thing, and yeah, it the, the business sort of. Uh, shifted quite quite quickly I would say into this new mode and um and yeah the last sort of six months have seen seen an uptick so it's been it's been good what have you found that sold well and perhaps what you expected to sell better than it has everything that's quality is selling well people want feel good feel good content well what we're actually finding is that our feel bad content is selling and what do I mean by feel bad I mean the serious stuff the current affairs um, we've got a series called great decisions uh, from PBS which looks at current hot topics things like the World Health Organization China versus the, the US in terms of global influence brexit that kind of thing and you know people are interested in that stuff people want to know you know perhaps even more about what's happening in the world around them so you know our current affairs stuff has been doing well. Um, anything that's quality is is doing really well. Um, wildlife, um, you have to have wildlife, I think, in your catalogue as, as a distributor because it's it's uh, it's a surefire hit. 
We do have more lighthearted fare as well. We've got a doc from CBC Canada called The World's Biggest Family about a man who's searching for his uh, half-siblings from the same sperm donor. So the lighthearted stuff, the serious stuff, as long as it's quality, um, buyers buyers are interested. We've seen lots of big streamers entering the market and doing very well over the last year, which obviously has a big impact in terms of content and content rights that are available for distributors. How have you noticed the the industry changing over the, the past 12 months? I mean, is it is it getting more difficult for you to get great content to sell? One of the you know, talking points of the last six months has been the fact that we've been doing a lot more VOD deals, um, not with the big streamers, but with the proliferation of smaller networks. It's been good. I have to say it's it's been a pleasant surprise. Um, you know, we've been making money on YouTube, which a couple of years ago, we just wouldn't have thought possible. Um, and it's actually the money we're making on YouTube is actually competing with the license fees that we're getting from broadcasters. This is for library content. So and it, and it, and it's for genre content. So it's 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 World War Two stuff. It's it's crime stuff. It's science. But you know, it's great that these films are getting a second life, and you know, the producers aren't elated because they'd forgotten that they'd made these films. That you know, they're 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 in their back catalogue that far, um, and they're getting you know they're getting checks coming through on a regular basis. So so that's been really really good. Uh, it has been the proliferation of of these VOD uh, networks. Um, in terms of acquiring content, it's always a, it's always a battle. You know, we are small; we cannot compete with the big boys in terms of laying down advances. So, frankly, we don't try. But what we do offer, and what producers do seem to uh, like, is this personal service. You know, we're at the end of the phone. Your film means so much more to us uh, because it really does put food on our table. If we do take on a film, because we don't take on that many, you know, it has it has to work. We have to go to bat for it. We mainly work with independent producers, one or two man or woman bands, passionate about a subject, spend a couple of years making a film, and just want to see someone work hard for it. You know, I think that producers understand that sometimes, despite your best efforts, you know, a film doesn't set the market alight as long as they can see that you're, you know, you're putting in the work they're reasonably happy. Obviously, we want all our all our films to hit, but I think you know we all know that's that that that's not the reality. But um, right, is that mainly in the UK or is that internationally? What are the, where where do your clients come from? We get offered films from you know any any country: Netherlands, uh, Kenya, South Africa, Iran. Yeah, all all over. You know, because there are so many film festivals. In fact. Um, you know, dotted around the world that, um, you know, that that's where the producers tend to congregate. And yeah, um, yeah so, so so they can come from anywhere. But saying that we do represent uh, some BBC titles. Uh, we do represent films that have been on uh, Channel 4, uh, on, on PBS. Just so happens that these are films that the bigger, the bigger guys either overlook or, are, you know, don't react too quick enough. How do you search for your client's content initially or do you, is it just you reading the trade mags or is it as you say is it film festivals is uh, presumably films and longer form content is the is the key content area for you as opposed to series definitely film festivals are are, are in the mix there's no shortage of supply 
in fact, there are about 10,000 documentaries made every year, believe it or not. People come to us, uh, we read the trades, um, the markets are still in, are still important for for acquisitions, not only for selling. So 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 MIP is is good um, for meeting producers. Real Screen is is good for meeting producers. How have you found the virtual markets have worked for you? Have they had a a real impact in terms of your sales for the year, or is it more around you know the one to one pitching that you've had on Zoom with broadcasters, etc.? Is has that paid dividends? I mean, for sure, you know, we've missed the markets. You know, they do give a a shot in the arm to the industry. The impact they have in terms of the energy that they uh, give to the industry each every six months or so, you know, can't really be replicated any other way. So we have we have missed that. There have been some benefits of the virtual festivals, and that's been able, you know, to meet people from further afield. But on the whole, yes, I would say that. Um, you know, the, the concentration of, of the mind, the focus of, you know, what are we selling? How many meetings have we got? Getting ready, getting prepared to, to go to battle for want of a better expression. Uh, we have missed that. Business hasn't been too badly affected, but we're looking forward, like I say, to, to, that, to that, that input, of that shot of energy. So now it's time for Story of the Week, where David gets to choose the TV industry New story over the past seven days that's caught his eye. David, what's your story of the week? What did catch my eye was seeing that uh, Channel 4 is going to launch the first sort of commercial channel on TikTok with advertisers and and, and branding and so forth. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, that's really innovative. And it's exciting. It's exciting, I think, uh, you know, hopefully for the production community, um, in terms of you know n- new outlets, new avenues um, for production, and, and new ways of producing. Yeah, I just I just thought that was really really interesting. I did note that um, ch- the Channel Four hashtag has got about seventy eight million views on TikTok. So this is before you know the channel's even launched. Mm. So it does seem as if young people are you know y- using both traditional media and social media. Um, you know, engaging with both, yeah. which, which, which is really, which is, which is really interesting. Yeah, and this is obviously part of their future for digital strategy. That uh, obviously, you know, a lot of Channel Four content skews young anyway, but um, it makes it makes a lot of sense for them to be looking at producing exclusive content from some of their you know big series brands like Made in Chelsea or Hollyoaks, for example. Gogglebox, etc. You know, it's a it's it's a rich seam to mine. So that's a, that's you know, it's a fascinating area and and something that you know Channel Four is really leaning hard into the uh, the digital strategy. So uh, you know, that's it's, it's great to see. I think it's going to be interesting to see what, what new comes out of it, what what new productions you know uh, come out of it, and and what that can spawn in in another direction. You know, obviously they've got their legacy brands. Um, which they can exploit really well, but um, but yeah, hopefully this will open some doors for for, for some new creatives. I, I, I'm not the demographic. I think that's a polite way of saying it. You know, for 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 these for these apps, and I just don't really know enough about them. I wish I did. The, the other story is that uh, Snapchat is uh, trying to compete with with TikTok. It's a bit older, and it's got this spotlight. Um, you know, part part of their business. And I read that they're giving away $1 million every day or a share of $1 million every day to their top creators. And they've already made 
you know, quite a few millionaires in the last few months. And uh, so something's going on, clearly. And, you know, being in being in telly, being in being in, you know, the creative creative media, I, I, I really should, you know, get a handle on this side of the business and, you know, got to sort of do, do my own homework. Obviously, your focus area is factual, which skews a lot older, right? And it's more, as you said, more a traditional distribution model that you've got and serving clients with with content that is uh, that is almost at the other end of the spectrum. And what we're seeing is, you know, these huge changes, these new media platforms that are launching, you know, almost every every few months. It, it, it appears it's very difficult to keep on top of that, isn't it? And I think that these new models are being developed every week. We've got Quibi who came and went. <laughs> I mean, we all saw that one, luckily, but uh, but that's about the only one that we could predict. But anyway, yeah, go on. I think it'd be interesting to uh, to get um, somebody from Snapchat on the show and maybe uh, a rep from TikTok over the next uh, few weeks, and you know, have a have a chat with them and and really understand what they're looking for for producers and what what are their new business models and now it's time in the show where my guests get to nominate their hero of the week and who or what they're telling to get in the bin david who's your hero of the week my hero uh of the week and my villain of the week are actually the same thing uh-huh. uh yes very marvel superhero universe <laughs> And staying in the digital theme it is the vod networks Woo-hoo! right Hero of the week in the sense that, as I said, we're doing deals um, with with more and more of them. The revenues are increasing. It's competing with the with, with the linear networks for for the library content. It's it's free money to some degree. That that's great. I read somewhere that there are seventy eight VOD platforms in France alone, which is you know insane. I don't know why France is is such a hotbed of of, of VOD, but uh, you know there you go. So, um, and yeah, I just want to big up the good guys, you know, uh, some of, some of the aggregators and platforms that have been around for a while, um, you know, uh, regular, honest, report well, deliver, you know, d- decent money, pleasure to work with. And um, yeah, they are out there and, um, they, you know, they, they do really well by us and, and hopefully, you know, they, they like us as well. So yes, Hair of the week. And then there are the not so good guys. It is a wild west. It is early. You know, there will be a shake up and the cream will rise to the top. But, you know, while we wait, you know, there are some unscrupulous types out there um, not offering uh, good splits at all, um, you know, and, you know, giving you some ridiculous offers with a straight face, uh, which I guess is, you know, it is fine if if, if people accept it. But, um, you know, I would encourage other distributors and producers not to accept anything, you know, very unfavorable. They can they can be poor payers. Um, you know, like I say, it is early. Some are going out of business. Some are going out of business. You know, while still owing you money. So yeah, it is it is uh, like I say, a wild west. And you know, the the, the bad guys, you know, um, have to be have to have to be watched carefully. The lack of face-to-face contact for us all at markets, I mean, that's when you often get to chat with your peers and other businesses, and that's when the rumours start to go around about some of these bad guys, right? The unscrupulous businesses that are out there perhaps get called out 
more often when people are, uh, are around together having a drink at the end of the day and saying, oh, you don't want to work with those guys. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're a nightmare. They didn't pay me or whatever. But I suppose there's less of that discussion and chat. Now we're all working from our kitchens. Yeah, that's a really good point, Justin. You know, it is about trust. You know, at the end of the day, this business, it, it, is, it is mainly about trust. And like you say, without that sort of face-to-face uh, contact, look them in the eye, all that, all that stuff. It's it's a lot harder. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a, it's it's a lot harder. Yeah. Well, that's a that's another uh, uh, unexpected benefit of uh, of face to face industry events that uh, that we're all missing, and we've uh, we've mentioned that a number of times on telecast. David, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been really interesting to to chat to you and hear about Scorpion TV, and I uh, and I hope all those one women and one men bands out there, the smaller production companies, and yourself continue to thrive in these most difficult of times cheers mate well that brings us to the end of another week's show as always thanks for listening don't forget to rate and subscribe to telecast and share it with friends and colleagues and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter called telecast plus it's packed with interesting tv industry stories you may have missed and exclusive insight and opinion including The Secret Producer, our intrepid, anonymous exec, reporting from the front line of TV production. It's all completely free. Just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in lockdown in London. Until next Thursday, as always, stay safe.